and you're not listening. Um, just kidding. <laughs> um, we're going to do quick uh, green room introductions before we kick off and hit all our social channels. I'll do some reverse introductions. Our, our friend Brian Fanzo will be joining us later in a little bit. You'll be hearing from him. He's going on last. Uh, but let's talk to uh, Jen. Jen. Jennifer, tell us what's going on. Where are you calling him from? What's happening? So, Hey, Ray. How are you guys? Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I am calling in from the fabulous Mile High City of Denver, Colorado. And uh, in my role as GVP of product development at Oracle, I am responsible for a team known as the A-Team. Yes, we named it after the old 80s TV show, dating myself. Um, but you get a sense of what that means. What that means is that we're the team responsible for helping our largest, most complex customers in their journey to the cloud. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, we've been remote for well, since the inception of the organization. So for 10 plus years, um, my organization and me have done nothing but work remote. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how the pandemic has uh, impacted our customers' journey to the cloud, what we've learned about working remotely from our customers, um, how it's shaped our up and coming leaders. So yeah, looking forward to it. Really, really cool. Well, hey, thanks. And Brian, uh, where are you calling in from and what are you talking about? Hey there, I'm uh, based in the San Francisco Bay Area, kind of in the outlying uh, East Bay Hills, uh, kind of enjoying what's actually great weather <laughs> today. Um, uh, and you know, I'm here as Executive Director of Hyperledger, uh, part of the Linux Foundation. I actually have a broader role at the Linux Foundation covering blockchain, healthcare, and identity, and I'm happy to dive into all of that. I'm really here to talk about it. Sounds great. We'll jump in. All right, cool. Let's, Hannah, do the honors, do the countdown, and we will kick off the show. All right. Three two, one, go. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Seth Ray and myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He's the author of a new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. He is a regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and many other publications. He's a regular television, business, and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He is, in my opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWAG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. <laughs> Always grateful. Um, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala, and co-founder, Vala Afshar, who's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Make sure you get that book. It's still relevant today. Exit and executives around the world are paying attention to him every day for his important, inspirational, insightful tweets. When he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking or on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and also posting insightful analyses on ZDNet and often about this show. So, But it's not about us. It's about our awesome guests. And who do we have uh, to get, kick it off today? Our first guest is Brian Bellendorf, General Manager of Blockchain Healthcare and Identity at Linux Foundation. The Linux Foundation is dedicated to building sustainable ecosystems around open source projects to accelerate technology development and commercial adoption. Brian was a primary developer of the Apache web server, the most popular web server software on the internet and founding member of the Apache Software Foundation. Brian was the founding CTO of Collabnet, a company that he co-founded with O'Reilly Associates, now O'Reilly Media, to develop tools for enabling collaborative distribution of software development. Brian was also the CTO of the World Economic Forum. <laughs> he, uh, Brian worked at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and the Department of Health and Human Services on advancing use of open standards through the use of open source software. Brian was named to the MIT Technology Review TR100 as one of the top 100 innovators in the world. Brian has served on several boards, including Mozilla Foundation, Benetech, and Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Bellendorf, B-R-I-A-N-B-E-H-L-E-N-D-O-R-F. Welcome, Brian, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Vala. Thank you, Ray. It's great to be here. You have a giant bio. We only have 20 minutes, so I had to cut it short. <laughs> so true. For that. My PR team super, super uh, eager to tell you my entire uh, LinkedIn history. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're so excited to have you. You know, I've seen you in action. I've seen it at, the, at WEF. Uh, I've seen it at different uh, other places. I think I've gone to China with you. Um, but I think we should level set 
most people don't know what the Linux Foundation is. So if you can share with a little bit about what is the Linux Foundation, what do you guys do, why is it so critical, uh, especially in a world of digital giants, which are dominating the world. Sure. Well, uh, there's a whole lot of different foundations out there that have formed in the last 20, 25 years around open source software. I mean, the, the Apache Software Foundation, which I co-founded uh, to, to shepherd the, the development of the web server and, and other related technologies was one approach to it. You had the Free Software Foundation. The Linux Foundation came about at a time uh, in the early 2000s, you know, as Linux was exploding, after, actually 10 years after Linus uh, posted the first version of the kernel, um, in recognition of the fact that companies that started to adopt this technology and we're asking questions about where is this going to go? How do we, uh, I, I, you know, uh, how are we reassured that uh, uh, the provenance, of the source code that comes in is, is an, you know, code that fell off the back of a truck or somebody contributing in off hours when they shouldn't have been, that kind of thing. But also, who gets to own the Linux trademark? And how do we make sure that the value of this ecosystem isn't captured by just one company? Uh, I don't know if you remember what a company once IPO'd with LNUX as their uh, stock symbol, right? So all sorts of questions about how do we grow this as a, as a broad-based commercial ecosystem uh, and, and coordinate our activities and support the core kind of duocracy, the core meritocracy that 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 is how all open source projects that are well run uh, actually create great software that can be embedded inside of all these systems. So the core model for the Linux Foundation is as a consortium. Uh, there's over 2,000 different companies now who are members of the broader Linux Foundation. Linux started focusing just on the kernel, but then pretty quickly realized there were these adjacent technology domains in cloud computing, software-defined networking, automotive software. Uh, I mean, there's over 500 different independent software initiatives now under the umbrella of the Linux Foundation. Hyperledger, which I lead, is, is one of those. Um, in fact, there's a couple that I, I oversee now. Uh, and uh, and the model is still the same. Pull together stakeholders, typically companies, to fund kind of an air traffic control office, not to write the code. The code still has to come from the community. It still has to have that that validity of having been generated from the ground up. Uh, and make sure you run these processes publicly in a way that assures everybody that that the right things are being done. Um, and then respond to to major issues that come up. For example, the recent White House executive order on supply chain safety uh, in the software yes. space. How do we as an open source community organize and try to improve the, the integrity of that, of, of, of the code that gets pushed out there to try to keep future ransomware attacks from, from happening as, as widely as they otherwise might. So that's kind of what we do. Incredible, <laughs> incredible work. And here's an example of tackling big issues. December 2020, Linux Foundation Public Health announced it will host the COVID-19 credential initiative. Uh, a privacy preserving uh, verifiable credential effort focused on interoperability. Uh, the credential initiative is a global community of more than 300 technologists, academics, healthcare professionals from more than 100 organizations working on projects that use privacy driven verifiable credentials to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. You were named, you and your team, to lead this effort. Can you talk about what this credential initiative is as an example of how the Linux Foundation is tackling major impactful projects due to the pandemic? Sure. Well, let's start even before the pandemic. Uh, uh, the, there's been a rise in uh, this kind of response to the way digital identity works on the internet today, you know, log in with Facebook, log in with Twitter. Uh, uh, there's been a response to that called the self-sovereign identity movement. And a lot of it had built upon the work in the blockchain community, particularly in Hyperledger, around some under, uh, underlying building blocks, uh, verifiable credentials, zero knowledge proofs, distributed ledgers as a new form of public key infrastructure, um, uh, but, but oriented with privacy by design, oriented around consent, that kind of thing. And so this community had been growing, there have been deployments of it, and when the pandemic hit, there were a set of people who realized that if by chance, by hope, we get to vaccines, remember it wasn't very clear that we, this miraculous kind of set of vaccines would come around, making sure that people uh, could prove their vaccination status quickly to be able to uh, cross borders or even go to restaurants or, or, or sporting events, that kind of thing, was going to probably be important in a world where you have a you know an infectious disease that transmits even amongst people who are asymptomatic um, uh, long before you even know if, if the test results, you know, if, if, long before they could even show in test results. So um, the Linux Foundation had launched this thing called the Public Health, LFPH, Public Health Initiative, actually in July of 2020, first to focus on exposure notification apps and make sure that not only were they open source, but that they were built with privacy front center. And so in December, we expanded the scope of LFPH to also focus on 
proof of act status, recognizing again, getting it right from a privacy point of view was going to be important and using open source software to help uplift the public health authorities in their ability to organize, figure out the right technology to use, and then make sure they didn't get trapped in a single vendor silo, you know, or depend upon one company to say who's who's vaccinated, who's not, but to do this as open standards that can get broadly adopted with a broad commercial ecosystem supporting those technologies. That became really important. A lot of people realized this was urgent work to do. And so now Linux Foundation Public Health is home to two software initiatives, one called Cardea, another called MedCreds, which are basically software for issuing credentials, holding credentials and verifying them that are both used in production environments today. Um, not in the United States, uh, outside the United States, but but lots of conversations happening in, uh, in the US. And then we've been leaders in a collaboration between us, uh, ID2020, who's long been in the digital identity space, and uh, another LF wing called the Trust Over IP Foundation, which has been active in the self-sovereign ID uh, space, more uh, around standards and, and interoperability. The three of us worked together on something called the Good Health Pass Collaborative, which just this week announced the publication of the Interoperability Blueprint, which is a way to weave together all these certifications you're seeing, all these QR codes from the state of California and New York, but also in the European Union, uh, all over Asia. How do we get to a, a unified environment where I can take my proof of act status from California and present it to board a plane to France and then go to a concert in France or go to a restaurant in France without a whole lot of hoops uh, to go through without having <laughs> to get vaccinated a, a third time? With, you know, How do we uh, provide a degree of interoperability that people expect from the web, expect from email, expect from these other digital <clears throat> systems that we have, but doing that in a way that still preserves privacy, preserves trust, doesn't require us to turn all of our data over to one company uh, or one government entity you know, or anything like that, uh, and does that sensitively and with a, a real sense of justice and equity. And so that's that's what the blueprint is all about. And, and uh, LFPH has been leading that, but also home for software and now with GCCN in uh, kind of directory services to try to make all this stuff easier to implement and globally consistent. Brian, this trusted interoperable mobility of identity is this the biggest project you've worked on in your lifetime? It just sounds like the impact and, and what it can touch from education, healthcare, finance, you know, it, it just seems like it, it's, a pretty, it's an incredible, incredibly important project. Digital identity is the biggest unresolved concept uh, we have on the internet. Like, like yeah. you, you know, we, you'd think that was something we, we could have solved back in the 90s. And in, in many ways, the original PGP Web of Trust model um, had a lot going for it and was was a, a clo pretty close to the right idea. It's just the the software, the usability, the, the you know, trusting people to manage their own keys <clears throat> uh, and a lot of the, the polemics around that, that solution made it really hard to drive adoption and, and figure out how to get uh, people to use in a way that they trusted, but also met them where they were at in terms of, yeah. you know, managing keys, managing privacy, that kind of thing. Um, in a way, what we have with self-sovereign ID now is making up for lost time is definitely inspired by the original uh, 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 web of trust kind of concept. Uh, and it really centers this back on the individual rather than your identity being defined by what Facebook knows about you or says about you or what the state of California knows in their portal about you or what an insurance company knows about your health record stored in some remote health portal somewhere. Instead, everything interesting about you is held by you in something more like a wallet. In fact, I'd say the last 10 years of the growth of the cryptocurrency space has actually helped us understand how to build um, end user experiences where people understand I've got digital assets here and something that I need to kind of shepherd and steward and decide when to share, decide when to spend, but that they're also portable. I can take my Bitcoin out of one exchange and put them in another exchange and it's still the same Bitcoin, right? Thinking about how to uh, uh, treat your personal information, your health records, your driver's license, your diploma in the same way. You know, your diploma, it should still be valid even if the school that issued it goes out of business, right? You still graduated <laughs> that, and it should still be verifiable. I should still be able to show that to a, an employer, have them look at that and go, that's a valid uh, diploma even though the school is no longer online because they went out of business. So this is the big concept around self-sovereign identity it is sometimes hard to grasp for people who are so used to a um, server-centric and LDAP, you know, Active Directory-centered uh, view of how digital identity works. But it's much more like how identity works in the real world. You know, the wallet in your back pocket or in your purse, you know, has cards from many different sources, and 
you know, your 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 uh, your physical diploma, you know, has that quality of still being valid even if the school goes out of business. So this is actually, I think, something consumers instinctively understand uh, and resonate with more closely than you know what what's on Google's or Facebook servers is defines me, right? Um, and that's it is a big topic. It's something that uh, I we've seen deployments of out there, but before the pandemic, they're just kind of burbling around. And I do think the the proof of vaccination status, proof of test results, will send us into uh, a new category. Of, 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 of use uh, a, a, a new a new user base really um, sure. it's been exciting I was this past week at the hymns conference uh, in Vegas which is the biggest health IT conference uh, on the planet and you know every other panel was about health passes you know vaccine passports I hate the term uh, uh, but uh, uh, about uh, reinventing and pivoting the healthcare information world around the patient rather than around the insurance company or around the, the hospital right like reestablishing the primacy of the individual in these technologies. So um, our job is to try to figure out how to make that work in software and also build a commercial ecosystem around all that. So um, uh, our work is, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it can feel pretty daunting at times, but um, uh, yeah, it's been no, exciting no, it's, to see the, the, the it's some, uh, adoption in that direction. Well, first of all, how was HIMSS? And more importantly, like how many people were there? Did you feel safe? I mean, what, what was the yeah. atmosphere like? So. So it was the first conference I'd been to since uh, March of 2020. Actually, it's funny. The last conference was Hyperledger's Global Forum in Arizona. That was like the week just before everything shut down. I said to a friend as I was like leaving that conference, yeah, I'm going home and I'll probably stay there for the rest of the year. I thought I was joking. Uh, <laughs> and so did he. Um, it turned out not to be the case. Anyways, so this is my first conference back, first time stepping on a plane, you know, even that short flight wow, uh, wow. Uh, uh, from, uh, um, from you know, Oakland to, to, to Vegas. But uh, everyone was masked. You know, they had strict vaccine protocols there. Uh, you, you know, they actually turned away quite a few people, as I understand it. Um, the number of, it definitely affected attendance. Uh, as I understand it, 20, 21,000 people were there at a conference that normally sees 50,000. Yeah, um, it was spread 000. across the Sands and and this new Caesars Forum, which I hadn't been in before. So it kind of felt very spread out for the number of people, and that might have felt a little more ghost towny. But look, the content was still great. The the chance to to catch not only the people I know and 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 reestablish that, but also in something other than Zoom, um, uh, but also to to catch hey that speaker. It's I, serendipity. I, you know, they're not going to necessarily respond to my email, but like I can physically grab them as they're stepping off stage <laughs> and like ask them a question. So that was good to be able to get back to again um i'm sure people have tons uh, of but, questions uh, for you so I, i'm sure they had tons okay. of questions for you but yeah. uh, but hey you know the um the work that you guys are doing on you know on, on the green and the you know all the stuff on covid green and covid shield i mean and identity is, is very interesting right because this is the foundation of what we've been talking about getting identity decentralized right getting that to the individual back in the control of the individual um where do you see the future roadmap for uh you know hyperledger foundation you guys have been doing so much work in so many different areas you guys have gone deeper into industries. Um, you've also been, you know, upfront ahead of uh, what's been going on with performance on blockchain, along with security on blockchain. Uh, so, so what's new? What are we, what should we be expecting? What can you kind of like sneak in here uh, for some of our audience? Sure. Well, um, the Hyperledger community, you know, has not slowed down at all during the pandemic. I mean, it, it did cause a say like, hey, let's try this as an experiment or let's try this as a, uh, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff at the corporate level kind of did freeze because people immediately got into kind of like a lockdown mode. But there are a lot of production deployments of networks out there that that added to their user base uh, quite a bit. Everything from the Food Trust Network and Trust Your Supplier, which actually came in really, uh, uh, it came into a pretty prominent role during the pandemic to connect makers of PPEs to buyers uh, who didn't know each other previously. It's almost kind of like KYC, but for buying a, you know, doing trade across borders, that kind of thing. Like that, that delivered, that's in production, that uh, acquired a whole lot of new users. Um, at HIMSS, there is a lot of coverage actually of a couple of production healthcare networks now, um, such as Avenir. Uh, which here, is yes. uh, uh, right uh, support from Anthem and and Cleveland Clinic and a bunch of other kind of major organizations are now using that as a platform for um, sharing of health information for conducting health transactions like payments and that sort of thing. So pretty exciting stuff. And that's built on top of Hyperledger technology underneath. It's actually built on top of. It's interesting. There's a company called Kaleido that built kind of a wrapper around 
Fabric and Bezu, which are the two Hyperledger uh, different platforms. Uh, 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 one one more Ethereum focused, obviously, and then Fabric, which is kind of the 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 the, the old standard, right? Uh, the grand the grand standard. Um, uh, but then also with Quorum and Corda, kind of integrated together into a common yeah. package that makes it easier to build apps on top and manage a consortium. And so Kaleido took that software they built and um, wrapped it together into a project called Firefly and made a donation of that to uh, Hyperledger just a few months ago. And so now that's in as an initiative. It's a it's a lab, which is what we kind of call our early stage projects. Um, but it's a it's a terrific platform for being able to accelerate development and just more quickly get into production with 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 one's block enterprise blockchain ideas. So um, so we've seen activity there, activity around interoperability, a new project called Cactus that came in from Accenture and Fujitsu and, and now is growing, which is all about saying it's going to be a multi-blockchain world. There's a lot of different technologies. How do we build bridges between them so that transactions can happen across them? You could move assets between them, all those kinds of things. And so that's that's taking off and pretty active. And uh, and then uh, you've probably heard of a lot of interest in the central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Um, yep, most yep, of the yep. CBDC pilots happening out there are on one or another uh, Hyperledger platform. In fact, the first oh, production one was the National Bank of Cambodia uh, running on something called Hyperledger Iroha, which is uh, a very tiny, very digital assets focused kind of flavor of Hyperledger, or one of our one of the six different ledgers we have. Um, uh, but it's running and it's, it's uh, seeing uh, millions of dollars in transactions a day. Uh, of U.S. dollars worth, but in the local oh. Cambodian, Cambodian currency. So well, really Brian, exciting Brian, to I, see that. Brian, I'm going to have to talk to you about my idea of putting uh, airline points onto blockchain and turning those points into cryptocurrency to become the world's largest cryptocurrency in the world and the world's largest ad network. And more importantly, it's to in take here. the unbanked and banked. It's on the book. It's on the book. Yeah. <laughs> we'll chat. That would be great. So, but Brian, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you uh, being here. Brian Bellendorf, General Manager for Blockchain Healthcare and Identity at the Linux Foundation. You can follow him at Twitter at Brian Bellendorf, B-E-H-L-E-N-D-O-R-F. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you, thanks, Brian. Ray. Brian is working on some big projects. Brian is busy. <laughs> He's like... like digital identity. He's right. That's at the center of everything you do. I mean, these, these are breakthrough innovation that will touch every... And data portability, if, if that's done properly, right, you have data portability and other folks can reuse this. So we hope to see him in the green room afterwards, but yeah, it would be fun just to continue that conversation. Uh, but but who do we have next? Like I know he doesn't like the term vaccine passport, but I'm telling you, the pandemic has probably accelerated the need for this innovation by a decade. Uh, much like other technologies we've talked about, like e-commerce. So it's, it's eroding our need for privacy, and we're going to see how that works. <laughs> but who do we have next? Yes. But who do we have next? Uh, our next guest. So. Talk about another uh, uh, incredible, brilliant executive, Jennifer Briscoe, Group Vice President of Product Development and Oracle. As Group Vice President of Development, Jennifer is responsible for global product development functions related to ensuring customer success with Oracle Cloud applications. Jennifer's responsibilities include oversight of the outbound arm of Oracle SaaS development organization, known as the A-Team. <laughs> Where's Mr. Name. T? Where's Mr. T? Not just because my last name is Afshar, but I love, I've always wanted to be on the A-Team. The A-Team <laughs> provides best practices around such topics as architecture, design, SaaS, extension techniques, integration tactics, and master data management strategies for Oracle's most strategic cloud application customers. Jennifer has nearly 25 years of experience in software development and technical leadership roles, including a role as a chief technology officer. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at jenmorgan46, J-E-N-M-O-R-G-A-N-4-6. Welcome, Jennifer, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you, guys. Good to be here. Hey, we are so excited to have you here. Thank you for uh, uh, being here. I, I want to start with a little bit about what's been going on in the world from remote work, uh, what customers have been looking on in the pandemic. But remind me, given your given your experience at Travelport, Saver, and other ones, I'm talking about the cryptocurrency idea on points, and we'll chat about that in a little bit. But but tell us, you know, what what happened for remote work, and you know, how did you handle customers during the pandemic? How did customers handle deployments and implementations in the middle of all this? So very very curious. Yeah, it's really, the, the pandemic has been a really interesting um, lens through which to view this whole conversation of remote work. So, you know, my, my organization has been in a remote capacity for, you know, 10 plus years. We were, we were sort of native. We were born native to the remote work conversation. So everything we do um, is either remote to headquarters or remote to our customers in some form or fashion. So we've 
developed a lot of expertise and tips and tricks and techniques as to how to make this whole thing work. And so watching some of our customers for whom this rapid pivot to remote work was a new thing, right, a kind of a paradigm altering thing for them has been really fascinating. Um, and more importantly, watching what it's how it shaped our up and coming leaders and the pressure it put on some of the, the younger leaders in these large migration um, efforts for our customers has really been a fascinating thing uh, to watch. So for example, from my perspective, some of the things that we saw happen with our customers in their migration projects, the pandemic put a put a sort of outsized burden on these young leaders in these in these really um, high profile pivotal uh, pivotal projects. Um, and not only did they have to do their normal project work and leadership around getting the project to be successful, but all of a sudden they were burdened with the nuances of managing remote teams and and getting that all to work together um, proved to be actually really um, problematic and complex for a lot of these young leaders. And, and watching how they grew through this has really been fascinating. Essentially what the pandemic did is it forced some of those really young leaders to uh, accelerate through that maturity curve um, from new leader, just learning how to assess my employees to having some of the more sophisticated, nuanced communication techniques that build an inclusive culture. So there were really three things that I saw come out of this from, from our customers and from interacting with these um, sort of younger up and coming leaders within our customers um, project teams. Um, one, one was, which I think is probably the most obvious to everyone, which is Having this remote work, um, it leveled the playing field, right? So these these folks who are remote to their central offices or remote to headquarters would often find themselves in phone calls with headquarters at a you know strategic meeting, and all of a sudden a great decision needs to be made. There's some debate that's being had about which way to go. Everybody that's in the room at headquarters in the central location jumps up, gets on the whiteboard, starts drawing some things, right, and then tries to come to a conclusion rather quickly. Meanwhile, everyone who's on the phone uh, kind of gets out. lost totally in that conversation, out. totally left out, 100% left out. So what the pandemic did is make everybody remote, right, level that playing field, gave everybody equitable opportunity to share their ideas. And that turned out to be a great accelerant for these young leaders to learn new communication techniques, right, how to widen their sphere of influence. And they learned those things far faster than they would have otherwise. So that was one interesting observation. Um, the second more nuanced, interesting observation that uh, we made through all of this was what happened to these young young leaders in how they learn to assess their talent, right? So typically when you're a new leader, one of the things that you grapple with as you're progressing through your career uh, uh, channels you know, up the corporate ladder is you move from being someone who's a very tactical thinker, I'm very in the weeds, I'm doing task management, you have to figure out how to go from there to I'm a strategic thinker, I'm a big picture thinker, I'm trying to lay down um, roadmaps and plans and risk mitigation strategies. And part of bridging that gap and making that leap is being comfortable getting away from some of those details. And a lot of what our new leaders really were, were gauging their talent on is how accessible is the talent to me? How quickly can I get answers to those details because I'm so comfortable in those details and I'm so interested in staying close to those tasks, right? And so when the, when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden everybody's remote, that easy access to those details just by you know going over to someone else's workspace and tapping them on the shoulder and getting those details right at your fingertips, um, suddenly that unconscious behavior where that was how they were assessing their talent, how accessible is my employee rather than assessing their talent based on how effective is my employee, that unconscious bias came to the forefront you know, rather quickly and turned into a conversation around how should we be measuring our employees, right? It's not this unconscious need for me to have access to details. It's more about me understanding how to gauge the effectiveness of my employee, right? So it really shifted the conversation from one about accessibility to one of expected outcomes, right? So this notion of being outcome oriented um, has been a huge, huge, I think, advantage of, uh, of the pandemic and this whole rapid pivot to remote work. And the third thing um, that we saw happen that I thought was really interesting and, and somewhat subtle was these communication styles and techniques and the impact it had on culture and inclusivity. And so let me, let me give you a couple of examples. So early on, you know, some of our customers for which remote work and the whole concept of Zoom and web conferencing was kind of new. You get on these calls, someone's trying to share a PowerPoint or a Word document or whatever it is. They can't get the sharing mechanism to work. We spend 20 minutes trying to fight the 
the, the technology, you know, that, that's supposed to help us in the remote working environment, and we waste the entire meeting. So the behavior started to shift to, hmm, let me create my content ahead of time, distribute that content ahead of time, and, and then the meeting is more productive, even if I can't figure out how to get it to share over the collaboration software. The effect of that turns out is it, it, it sort of rooted in this notion of we have different learning styles, different mm -hmm. thinking styles, right? As kids, we all are exposed to this. Some of us learn better visually. Some of us learn better through oral communication. Well, it's no different as adults. And, and as, our, as we look across our talent, we have these different ways that our talent ingests information, right? Some of our talent, I, I like to call them methodical information ingesters. And what I mean by that is they need to have the information simmer for a while. And those particular resources are often underappreciated and underutilized for their contribution in, in innovation and big ideas because they take longer to process the ideas and the information. And so while, while everybody's in the same room, you get this effect of like real-time on-the-fly communication and that's great, but it does leave out a segment of your population when, when that's happening. And so one of the interesting side effects of this remote work condition forced upon everyone is it did create space for my, for, for what I've been calling these methodical information ingesters to contribute. Um, and some of the ideas that came out of them have been phenomenal and they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to present those ideas um, in any other setting. And our young leaders saw that happen and actually consciously changed communication strategies to make sure that those different styles of learning and those different styles of communication were now included in the conversation more widely. So I thought that was really fantastic to see and fascinating to watch. What an amazing set of observations in terms of young leaders as they had to uh, you know, go through this uh, journey, uh, this forced journey uh, pandemic. Uh, so you talked about preparedness, new learning models, the importance of empathy, the importance of inclusivity. Uh, where did you spend most of your time leading the A-team so that they could proactively understand these nuances of being more mindful, being more empathetic, being more generous, being more involved, being more forgiving when you can't share the document? <laughs> Uh, because a lot of this is is not just technology, but it, it's EQIQ. You know, you really have and to. And it's not taught. I, I, I didn't <laughs> learn that when I was in school. Yeah, as a young leader, it's not I'm, taught. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I made all the mistakes you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely uh, not taught. So, where did you spend most of your time? Um, you know, leading this global talented team that your customers are really depending on to show them the way. You know, so p part of the process that we use when we engage with our customers really lends itself well to this kind of um, take some time, retro take, take a retrospective, take a moment to sort of look back on what we just did and figure out how we can improve upon what happened. But so, so the way that the A-team works is we will get involved in one of two ways with our customers. Sort of one is a proactive manner where uh, we're, we're helping them shape the solution. We're part of the sales cycle. We understand what business problem they're trying to solve. We're going to, sh to help shape the architecture um, and help mitigate risk as, you know, as they come across it. The other way that we, we get engaged, which actually tends to be the one where most of our EQ learnings come from, tend to be these reactive, really escalated situations where something has gone awry. Um, something unexpected has happened and we really need to jump in and figure out A, what the problem is, B, what the impact is, um, C, what the strategy is um, for getting well. And in doing that, you have to really start to understand how people are reacting to the problem around you and what who's contributing to, to the to pieces of the problem. Most of the time, the problem is less about the technical issues and more about how we're reacting to the technical issues. What are the processes that we're following? What are the communication strategies that we're using? And so you get in those situations often enough and you start to see those patterns repeat. Um, one of the things we do when we finish any engagement with a customer is we have a retrospective and we do that retrospective with the customer um, for a couple of reasons. One is we want to help the customer understand what process improvements could be made to further their success on the journey to the cloud. Um, two is we want to take any learnings we can from a product perspective to take back and shape the roadmap of our of our SaaS uh, portfolio on the whole. And three is 
we want to use it as a pedagogical tool for our own um, up and coming A team members, right? So when you get involved in, in cases where the customer feels like their business is on the line, you're exposed to a lot of emotion, right? A lot of stress, oh, yeah, a lot of oftentimes angry, frustrated voices and comments. And so it's really important that we take a step back and ask ourselves, did we handle the situation in the best way possible to help our customers feel confident and calm? Did we contribute to chaos or did we calm the chaos? Um, and so that retrospective process for us has been instrumental in allowing us to really consciously learn our lessons, if you will, um, and focus on, with, a, with, a, with intention, I should say, focus with intention on the softer side of the equation here, not the technical side of the equation. So it's quite intentional on our part. It's quite purposeful on our part. Um, but the process, the, the process and the fact that we're engaged in these, you know, really escalated situations enables that. It's, it almost mandates it, frankly. For sure, for sure. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and one of the things that you know is, is driving some of this is is really you know moving to different types of architectures, moving to different types of customer experiences, moving to uh, different types of development tools along the way. Uh, the cloud is central to a lot of the shift uh, that's happening there. Uh, what happened? Do you see more cloud adoption in the middle of the pandemic? Less yeah. cloud adoption because people couldn't get together. Like, yeah. where where did you see that kind of a uh, trend line fo focus on? <laughs> Yeah, it was really interesting. So with all of our customers, we, we completely expect that for any unplanned event, they're going to have some kind of mitigation strategy. But what was really unique about the pandemic for everyone was its breadth, right? Its scope and breadth. It impacted all industries and all regions. And so there's, there were very few sort of already in the, in the box, if you will, already talked about mitigation strategies that can address that kind of breadth and scope and, and, and the rapid nature of it, of it all happening. And so what we saw was customers sort of split into these two segments of how they reacted to uh, the pandemic in context of their journey to the cloud. One segment of the population really prioritized the spend notion of things and decided that pausing spend or, or slowing spend uh, was more appropriate. And that was going to be their, their way of, of mitigating the risk that the pandemic had suddenly thrust upon everyone. The other portion of the customer base um, really embraced the transformation <clears throat> aspect to the cloud and in fact demanded to accelerate it because their reasons for wanting to do a migration to the cloud in the first, first place were not rooted in the financial aspect of things so much. I'm sure that there's an element there, but it wasn't their primary. Their primary reason for doing these kinds of journeys was transformational in nature. They want the benefits that come with SaaS, right? One of those benefits that SaaS comes with is this nearly continuous stream of innovation, right? Mm -hmm. New capabilities, new, um, new things delivered to you on a near continuous basis, like artificial intelligence and how it plays a role in, <clears throat> in your sales process or how artificial intelligence might play a role in your recruiting process. So the, if customers had oriented their business case and their strategy around what they wanted out of their cloud migration around one of these kinds of transformational elements, they didn't ever lose sight of that. In fact, the pandemic made that urgency even greater for them. It accelerated and proved to them, it underscored to them, this need to get at this place where they could have richer, faster um, innovation be a part of their, their pipeline, if you will. Uh, whereas, Customers who were who came at it from a different perspective to begin with, more of a cost perspective, um, took took that pullback um, mode. So it was really interesting to see, and not at all what I would have predicted along industry lines. It wasn't along industry lines at all. It was very much rooted in why did I do this in the first place? Let me not lose sight of what I was solving for in the first place. It's very interesting. That makes sense for the group that accelerated um, their investment in technology. Um, if you had two buckets that the A team worked on, the uh, reinvention and modernization of existing processes by adding technology like AI or blockchain or cloud in one bucket, so really existing capabilities now smarter and faster. And the next bucket, business model innovation, a whole new way of uh, sourcing new revenue by delivering capabilities that were net new to the company. How much of the time is the A team working on business model innovation as a result of the pandemic or just in general when you're dealing proactively with companies that are looking for transformational change? 
Yeah, you know, the pandemic didn't really change that equation for us. Um, our customers who come at their journey to the cloud from the perspective of wanting true transformation, uh, you cannot achieve true transformation unless you also understand how to alter your business processes and practices to take advantage of this new innovation, right? They go hand in hand. So the pandemic didn't change that ratio for us. If those customers were already uh, on the, uh, you know, on the trail of their cloud journey for reasons of transformation, they were already solving some really interesting complex problems related to how the innovation should work in their space. And we were already partnered with them. So <clears throat> what was interesting though, and I think surprising, and this isn't necessarily a side effect of the pandemic, but just something that in general, um, I've, I've noticed about our customers on this cloud journey that I think surprise, surprises everyone, right? So when we do these retrospectives, one of the things we always ask ourselves internally is how how do we think the customer experience through all of this was? What do we think they could have done to be more successful? And one of the most common things that comes out of that conversation is this underemphasis on company culture. If you have yes. a company culture that doesn't embrace change, SaaS is going to be a really hard place to get yes. transformation yes. from. And so... So one of the things we always want to try to help our customers do is let's look at your company culture today. Because if you aren't able to accept these paradigm shifting technologies in a conscious, methodical, intentional, purposeful way, you're not going to reap any benefit of them. It's just a slew of changes coming at you, right? And you never actually take a step back to try to understand, okay, what's new in my landscape? What yep. should I do to try to pivot my business practices and processes to really capitalize on that innovation so that we do continue our transformation? That part of the conversation is all too often lost in the weeds and details of trying to just get it done. Um, yeah, that is the art. That is the art of transformation. Art. And we're seeing more and more of people emphasize on that, trying to make that work. Uh, and and it's, 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 it's really hard. All right, I'm going to do some quick lightning round questions for you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, all right, transformation, cloud transformation. We're seeing that pick up. Um, when, when do you think, like, who, who do you think is driving that? Like, which is the leader that's driving it? It's the CEO, the CIO, the, the chief digital officer, the CFO. Like, who's driving it most? So you can only choose one. So I want to know. Oh, you know, I, that's a really great question. Who's driving it most? I love that you're thinking about it, which tells me you're actually talking to lots of different CXOs. So it's yeah. hard to pick one, which is good news. If that's, the, yeah, if that's the I mean, it's okay. Rather than give a rapid fire answer on that, I'm going to, I'm going to bifurcate my answer in two ways. So for people who are migrating to infrastructure as a service, um, you know, native cloud solutions, platform as a service versus companies that are migrating to SaaS. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Right? yep. So I, it's my personal opinion that the driving change, the catalyst for change for migration to, um, you know, uh, uh, native cloud solutions platform and, and infrastructure as a service solutions actually comes more from the development community and this need to be this desire to be on latest and greatest technologies, um, ease of use, make me more productive, you know, give me exposure to new technologies faster. And so part of that is is driven by the developers themselves and evangelizing those solutions themselves. And part of it's also driven by cost for sure. But on the SaaS side, I think it's driven more by executive leadership in this awareness of how do we stay competitive? How do we stay differentiated? We can only do that with faster and faster innovation. We need faster pace of change and we need to ingest that pace of change faster. And I think that gets driven more at the executive level for the SaaS side, but I'm not sure that's true on the infrastructure side. It's going to be interesting to watch. One last one since uh, we're running out of time, but the uh, math joke for you since you're a math major. What do you get when you cross a mosquito with a mountain climber? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. You can't cross a vector in a scalar. Thought I'd make you laugh. All right. Anyways, got to go. <laughs> All right. We are here. <laughs> hey, why not? I got a math major here. I want to take advantage of it. We're here with Jennifer Briscoe, VP of Product Development at Oracle. You can follow her on Twitter at J-E-N-M-O-R-N-G-A-N-46. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, correct. Very, very cool. Hey, thank you so much thank for being on the show. <laughs> Hey, you know, I'm hanging out with a bunch of math geeks. Interview question if I was 
trying to go to Google or something. Uh, <laughs> one of those, why is the man hole around? That's funny. Uh, oh my God, that was my question for uh, for interview at Deloitte. Uh, so, really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was in 96. That was pretty scary. Wow. But who do we have next? We got some crazy dude that we always bump into once in a while. My, my sense is I would never get hired today with these hard questions. Uh, our, this is, by the way, our first ballot Hall of Fame inductee guest who's joining us. Brian Fanzo, speaker, change evangelist. Brian is a digital futurist keynote speaker who translates the trends of tomorrow to inspire change today. Push the damn button. Brian has worked in 76 countries uh, highlighting his passion for change, collaboration, and technology. Prior to speaking, Brian worked nine years at the Department of Defense, where he managed global teams to deploy collaborative and security solutions across all branches of the military. That means he had the highest civilian security clearance. This is a trusted resource. Don't tell anybody. Brian is currently founder of iSocial France, which has helped launch digital and influencer strategies with the world's most iconic brands, too many iconic brands to name. Brian has been recognized as a top 20 digital transformation influencer, a top 50 most mentioned user by CMOs on Twitter, and top 25 social business leader of the future by The Economist, another reputable publication. He's a must-follow on Twitter at iSocialFriends, I-S-O-C-I-A-L-F-A-N-Z. Welcome back, Brian, to the Shrek TV. Thanks for having me. Although I didn't, I didn't. You added jokes now to the uh, repertoire here. You know, sitting in the green room, I, I'm, I'm impressed, Ray. You, you throw in some humor in here, so uh, excited to be back again, guys. Always, always a pleasure. Ray is only funny offline. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're trying to have fun. Uh, so, hey, look, I, we want to catch up with you. You're always on the latest trends. You're always probably about, you know, a year ahead. You know, what's heading that 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 the market. Uh, what I want to ask you about is really about the creator economy. I want to know what it is. What's going on? How's it different? Uh, and then we can actually have a little fun uh, conversation about Meerkat versus uh, Clubhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, Brian, please go slow because uh, you're probably two years ahead on this topic. Yes. Uh, I, I see ADH, dollar ADH trading at $5 right now on <laughs> your name. Most of our audience have no idea, and I don't mean this as a disparaging comment, right. but this adoption of, you know, I don't even know how to call it, altcoins or cryptocurrency. In the creator economy really was born this year you know from v friends to people yep. art sales to non-fungible token this is 2021 movement so really go slow for my benefit because i really want to understand the science and art behind what you're doing and yeah. and the monetization opportunities and yeah, why, no, why I, they're there i i appreciate that you know and always being Reminded to go slow is definitely uh, one that I always need uh, across the board. No, this is for me. This we is, know that. You no, gotta, I, I gotta hold my hand, brother. I appreciate that, hand. and I, I will tell you, for me, it's been, it's probably been one of the most exciting things I've had to work on. And a year ago, it would have not been on my radar or even in like where I would have thought I would be spending a lot of my time. And it, a lot of it comes down to a lot of the shift. And I liked what you know what, what Brian was saying earlier about what blockchain is bringing to the market. And you know, I I've spent a lot of time talking blockchain uh, as far back as you know 2016, 2017 on this idea of, you know, decentralization and and transparency and you know, although crypto's been around for a while, what is it, I believe is exciting right now with this creator economy is like redefining what monetization actually is. And I, I look at this a lot to be associated to this idea where we can build an economy that is a platform neutral, right? And it's not attached to an individual like Facebook or Instagram, but it's also not attached to an individual's piece of content. And so you can create, you know, the coin aspect is only one way of this, you know, creator economy monetization. I happen to have uh, the ADHD coin, which is the coin that I have as someone that was diagnosed uh, ADHD. I, I like to say it's a super powered coin because ADHD is my superpower. And I, you know, I actually applied for the coin uh, back in February after hearing um, some people talk about it on Clubhouse. And uh, thankfully was, you know, selected back on March 12th to uh, have my own coin. And some people have, you know, their own individual coin or some are doing more of a community coin. But really what this comes down to is how can we remove some of the barriers to entry and some of the, the limitations for true community building and rewarding a community. And I think the big differentiator for this from just basic crypto or you know what you consider a membership site like Patreon or OnlyFans or any of those is the idea that in, by investing in the coin, by those that are holding you know my the ADHD coin, which is on the, the rally network, 
as the as you're investing, you're getting weekly rewards that are paid out based on the percentage that you're holding. You're getting access to special things for those that are holding, but you're also benefiting as more people join, the value goes up. And you know, one of the one of the bands that are on Rally um, is Portugal the Man. Portugal the Man, you know, a very popular uh, you know international band. And I thought they had a really interesting take on this, as they didn't want to build a fan club as just like a traditional passive form of income. They wanted to build something that if the people that are supporting them early on continue to get rewarded and reap the benefits, it is that old essence of, you know, the rising tide lifts all ships. And so when I really think of this, this creator economy is it takes the, the power and the limitations away from platforms, right? I'm, I've been doing influencer marketing and, and being paid as an influencer myself now since 2014, but that was all very transactional. A brand would pay me because they believed that my trust with an audience was greater than their trust with that audience. And then we would collaborate with, to create something for my audience. Now, if we think about it, it's no longer about the need to be just transactional. You can simply be investing in something that together you're growing, we're co-creating and kind of building things across the board. And so for me, this is that it's an essence that says it doesn't matter if you're a school teacher, you're a chef, you could be someone selling services, or maybe you're, you're selling swag or products. You have the ability for people to invest in your own economy. They can share coins. And what's neat is I'm, you know, I'm on the Rally Network. Rally is, you know, uh, is one of the investors is the uh, A16Z, of course, who's also uh, an investor there on Clubhouse. And what's neat for me is, you know, that idea that idea that I can really help my community grow with me. And I'm having some people, you know, reaping some really great rewards uh, just simply from supporting the coin and, and kind of connecting the dots. And it's only been a couple months so far. So, you, so just to rewind for our audience, you applied somewhere, I'm assuming Raleigh, for yep. ADH in February. Raleigh has a process of approving whether you can own the, own the coin. So I suspect you have to say something about who you are and what the goals are and so on and so forth. Rally yes. is funded by Andreessen Horowitz. You probably learned about them on Clubhouse, I'm guessing. Yes. Um, but uh, is that the process? You, you yep. think about a unique value proposition that you can offer, you associate a name to a coin, you get on Rally Network, and you start building a community. Like how many ADHD holders are they? Right, and, so right. And, as of right now, and, I, and I'm glad you kind of put that together because there are other ones that have coins as well. And there's also the NFT side of the house. And actually, Rally has an NFT play as well. But I think that the NFT play is also, you know, it's connected a lot in this creator economy in the sense that, you know, the starving artist play is what used to exist. And so the process for me was going on to Rally, applying for the coin. And what I had had was I already had a structure that I wanted to move my community from being, I, you know, I have a Twitter following, I have a podcast audience, I have a live video audience, I have a, a clubhouse audience. It was very connected to the content. I wanted to, I wanted to build where I said, how do I bring everyone into one location, which we're launching uh, on Friday of next week, the discord server, which is where it will be kind of like the central hub for conversation for all of those that hold uh, the ADHD coin. And so right now I, I believe we have, I have 349 uh, holders of the ADHD coin, um, wow. which is, yeah, it's been great. We have about 129,000 uh, coins in circulation total. So, you know, it's on the Ethereum um, main network. So it's connected to um, Ethereum on that side, but there are some other ones. I know um, some, you know, BitCloud is one that I know has been out there. There's a couple other coins. I believe human.io um, is one or AI uh, that recently put out there. And the other piece of it that I think is just important is you don't have to have your actually own individual coin to kind of reap the benefits of it, right? I'm a, I'm actually a, I'm investing in 17 other creators' coins. And what's neat about that is the more I talk about what they're doing and the mission, some of them have a cause behind it. Some of them are building a, you know, a developer element behind it. But they, each one of them kind of have their own piece. And as that coin, get, you know, you're getting more value, you're getting rewards, the coin value goes up. Of course, you know, my portfolio goes up as well. And for me, it's a, it's a great combination of uh, stepping your toe into crypto without it having to be, uh, you know, the complications of digital wallets and Bitcoin. Like, there's a lot, I think, barrier to entry to there is a lot steeper 
And the other part of it is you get to actually invest in, in someone or an individual community that you're then reaping the benefits to from rather than something being more of like a, a stock exchange, uh, you know, type of scenario. So for me, that's, it is really something, you know, Joe Paluzzi, uh, you know, of Content Marketing Institute, who now launched his own, uh, the Tilt uh, newsletter, he has a coin associated with his. I just simply by me holding the coin, I have the opportunity to be quoted in his email newsletter. I have the, the opportunity to guest on his, on his so website. So these are value added services. Like for example, the NFT launch with, uh, V friends yes. gave you a pass to VCon. Gave you, you know, one-on-one -on -one interviews with Gary and and his, you know, his his influencer community. So the same concept applies to here. A shareholder of ADHD can have personalized access to you or access to your, you know, premium premium content. What can you talk to us about? What are the benefits of being a majority shareholder of ADHD? So yeah, so I, I think that's kind of the beauty is we're all kind of pushing that envelope together today, right? So the some some creators are giving you know exclusive access to maybe a private webinar every other week. Mm -hmm. Some yeah. are for for me, we're doing a, a merchandise launch uh, as part of our our September piece, and so everyone that holds the coin at the start of September will actually be the only ones that'll get access to version one of merchandise. So they'll be the only ones they'll be able to you know, have that exclusive access. So you know, version two will be with the public will get version so one telling, will be are you those. telling us if constellation research had a constellation coin one of the benefits could be if you had x amount of coins you could have access to the best and brightest analysts in the world with private sessions is that without question yeah, and, and I will tell you, like, the, that's a great use case. I think, you know, the, the Twitch, there's a lot of Twitch community users that, I mean, for those yes. that aren't familiar with Twitch, it's the Twitch creators, I believe, have mastered community better than any creators on any other platform. And exactly. This, this is coming from someone that doesn't, like, I'm not a Twitch creator. I've had, I do a lot of other platforms and I'm in awe of them. And some of the things they offer is like, if you're holding a certain amount of coin on Twitch, your comments come up in bold when you comment during someone's live game or live smart, interview. Smart. Some of the things they're doing is that if you own a certain amount of coin, you actually get some physical you know, swag sent to you uh, included in that. And to me, that's part of it's that it's also very interesting is that like for, for my coin at the moment, you could use your coin to purchase one-on-one -on -one coaching, or you could simply hold the coin and get wow. access to the private Discord community. And really, it's up to the creators to be as creative um, <laughs> or as you know free-flowing as you want to go on that. And to me, this is, you know, if I was a chef, right, the idea, uh, you, you mentioned Gary Vee, even like, you know, yeah. your recipes, right? Your recipe could be an NFT, and anybody who invests in that recipe that. not only that. gets access to that you know, exclusive recipe and they're the, the owner of that NFT, but maybe they get access to the behind the scenes show before you do your cooking show on YouTube. So it's really that, you know, it's removing a lot of those barriers to entry that most platforms. How eat. many, how much would people bid to be like next to Jose Andres serving in a community? You know, I mean, the honor of being, he should just, he should just take his money from, uh, from Jeff Bezos and turn that all into a coin. hundred million. <laughs> That's, a, that's right. a nice coin there. Yeah, that's a lot of, yeah. It's <laughs> just so. fascinating. To me, it's it's so revolutionary, so uh, such a, uh, a clear monetization strategy. And it does allow you to tip your water into the cryptocurrency world, believe it or not. The more you become familiar with this, the more comfortable you are understanding the digitization of currency, which, yep. frankly, it's the, you know, it's the biggest thing in our well, lifetime. Well, well, What's really cool is the creator economy and the way it's being set up now is going to set off the next renaissance. This is the digital renaissance, just like the original renaissance where we actually had benefactors and they were like, you know, rich individuals, kings, like, like this is actually crowdsourced renaissance, which actually creates massive skill overnight. And that, that to me is what's more, I mean, we're unleashing a whole creative wave that people haven't even figured out yet. So, which is, you know, let's face it, the blockchain itself you know, although it's being like right now, most of the conversation ends up being around crypto. That that's only such one small use case. Yeah, and, and, and I love what Brian exchange. said earlier, right? Like that identity play. Like we are in an information age, and today's creators and consumers have realized that you know if you're using a platform, you're paying with it with your data. Well, what if we are controlling our data? How do we look at this information that we have? And I, you know, I think for me, I've always looked for a way to. So to embrace the a thousand true fan model, which was, you know, that article that was written, I think back in 2008 on that, you know, rather than wanting more followers and more people, what if you had a thousand true fans that truly believed in what you're doing and would invest in you and you would be able to go deeper with them? 
I believe where this is going, thanks to blockchain, and now with something like crypto coins or even or creator coins or even the NFTs, it does empower every creator of all size. You don't need a million followers or a million subscribers. You can truly have a specialty and have your true fans, and them alone investing in your coin could ultimately be the only monetization that you're doing. And I will tell you, my goal is to, uh, 2022 and moving forward, I will have my speaking business, which is one arm, and the other business will be solely funded based on the creator economy and creator coins. And I'm you know, very bullish on that. You know, for folks for folks checking it out, you should check out rally.io. Uh, that's a good place to get started. Uh, check out the Twitch site. It's actually owned by Amazon now, but it is one of the most interesting communities that are out there. And then, of course, Discord. I mean, if if you know, honestly, like if you're using Skype, you're too old. If you're using Teams, forget it. Uh, if you're under the age of 25, everybody's on Discord. So that's all you need to know. So, so yeah, hey, some great technology. Six different platforms since Disrupt TV five years ago. So. You know, this is true. I think, and each time I feel like I, I it's like a, <laughs> and it's, and that ultimately, in a weird way, this conversation is the first one that allows me to stop feeling like I have to jump the platforms, right? From from the Meerkat conversation we had at South by Southwest, right? I was on the side of the street there, yeah. and then we talked, we talked Periscope, and you know, and Clubhouse. You know, Clubhouse has been such a you know a viral, you know, just an amazing platform from a social audio perspective. But I've always been disconnected with my monetization my content strategy and yep. i think this is this is kind of like for me it's almost refreshing because yeah. i can i can provide value to clubhouse and they can go to adhdcoin.com and be part of that and the, the people that have the coin will be the ones that are pulled up to get, have their question answered first right that i can also go on live video and have those that are donating on live video be brought up as a guest and me have them on screen and because it's not you know it's it is built on that blockchain uh, side of the house i actually feel as though it not only is it something i'm investing in today but it's something i believe will be along you know around for the long time you're I know. And I'm, I'm, space, my friend. You're a pioneer. You're a pioneer, man. And I'm looking at the, uh, you know, the, the rankings on coins right now. KSK and Chow and and Sally are, as Ali as we call it, yep. is doing really well. It's crazy. I mean, it's 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 amazing to see. So, um, hey, real quick. So what? Oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Bali, go ahead. Last question to you. Given the fact you branded the coin ADHD, how much of that branding do you think will influence? your content because you're an exceptionally successful person who has been diagnosed with ADHD. So do you feel that the audience that's connecting to you, buying your coins, not only want to understand the future of digital and influencer and creator economy, but they also, as folks that have been diagnosed with ADHD, want to know what are your secrets of staying focused and your determination and the way you've been able to reinvent yourself a number of times how much of that branding is going to influence the type of content you're going to produce? Oh, well, thank you, Vela, for asking that. I think, you know, when I, when I did apply for the coin, it was any three to five letter, um, you know, naming that I could have. And my last name happens to be Fanzo. It works very nicely in five letters. Uh, I could have used speak, you know, as a full-time speaker. And, but for me, that you know, the conversation around neurodiversity and as someone that's diagnosed ADHD, my daughter, my nine-year-old, was just recently diagnosed ADHD and dyslexia as well. For me, it became a no-brainer, not only for something that I'm leaning into the content, but it, it almost forces the conversation every time, every interview I do, every yeah. time yeah. I'm on stage. And for me, that's an important aspect as we all realize the importance of mental health, removing stigmas away. And so I am launching in October, um, ADHDsuperpowered.com, a full website all on this idea of how can we that are, you know, that are going through life. You know, I was late diagnosed. I was diagnosed at 31 years old. How can we help each other sharing all of these things that are going on in there? And so the strategy really for me was, I it, it, it doesn't define me. It is something that I've been able to lean into as a superpower. But by making the coin ADHD, it really allows it to be integrated in every conversation around everything that I'm doing. And, and this is a, being a perfect example of that. Vulnerability is the path to trust. And you're one of the most trustworthy voices on the web social Thank sphere. You. So and it's this is one of the reasons because your radical transparency and the way you connect with people is is, is beautiful. 
No, this is wonderful. And everyone, check out the uh, you know check out the sites uh, you know that uh, Brian's been talking about. And of course, you know we're early again in the creator economy, and we're always early with Brian Fanzo, speaker and change evangelist. More importantly, follow him on Twitter at iSocialFans. So thanks a lot for being here. We have got to catch up in person, and yes. uh, I'll drop you a line over the weekend. So. Sounds good. You guys have a great one. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Take care. Truly a pioneer. He's always, like you said, one to two years ahead of the rest of us. Um, always experimenting, um, which is which is that beginner's mindset is why he's so successful. Uh, any thoughts on episode two forty six? You know, like uh, three big brains on the show, which is making my yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we got we got the view on what's happening with you know blockchain, where it's headed, how it's being integrated into the fabric of business and transactions and identity. Um, and I think what was interesting is hearing about where we are with uh, cloud and transformation, and really getting the culture right and governance. Uh, and then of course, Brian was really talking about what's new, really getting empowering creators as we enter the next digital renaissance. So, so this is going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, what about you? What's on your mind? Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, we're starting to get busy. Uh, I know you've been busy all year, but uh, lots of speaking, lots of writing, lots of conferences to, uh, in, the, in, the, in the September, October, November period. So regardless of the impact of the pandemic, businesses are moving forward. And there's a lot of activities for both you and I in the next several weeks, which is, you know, what we can expect in the second half of the year. So exciting times. Well, speaking about that, episode 247, who do we have coming up? Yes, we have Brian Rebinai, co-founder, CEO of Gloat, Mimi Brooks, CEO of Logical Design Solution, and Kenneth, I believe it's Cook here, uh, senior editor oh, yeah. of The Economist. The Economist guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's so. got a wonderful new book about power of storytelling, and he's very active on on social media, and he's uh, he's an incredible thought leader. So episode 247, uh, buckle your seats, bring your popcorn. It's going to be another amazing I know. show. If it's 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, follow us up on Disrupt TV. You can catch us every or most Fridays. So we'll see you next week for an awesome edition. Take care, everybody. Bye, everyone.